Okay, we are looking at Psalm 104 tonight. Psalm 104. And if, you, if you've read it already, then you know it, it starts and ends the same way that Psalm 103 uh, did. It's, it's, uh, it's a psalm that is focused on blessing the Lord. Uh, the psalmist is is um, is blessing the Lord, and he is um, uh, modeling once again this whole business of stirring our hearts up to worship and praise and thanksgiving and adoration and and doing that intentionally. We sang number thirty as our our last hymn because. Um, this uh, oh worship the king the the hymn that we're familiar with the the writer here Robert Grant based this hymn off of Psalm 104 and the 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 psalm is one that if you don't uh, if you don't slow down and 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 really look you'll miss it but it's one that really structures itself by by walking through and focusing on God as creator and God as sustainer of the earth. And, and the way that he works his way through this psalm is really he goes through the, the six days of creation and he references those. He's not explicitly covering those, but he references those and themes his praise around those. And we're going to look at that tonight. But he does it to stir his heart up to praise God because... As verse 1 says, Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord, my God, Thou art very great. Thou art um, clothed with honor and majesty. He's going through uh, these realities about the Lord, about God as Creator, about God as Sustainer. He's doing all of that to point back to the fact that the Lord is great, very great, and He is clothed with majesty and honor. And both of those words are just very close to um, He is full of glory. Okay, So his, the, the fact that He's Creator, the fact that He's Sustainer, puts His glory on display. And as we're, as we're thinking through this, um, it's not just the glory of His sovereignty that we're talking about here in creation, but it's also the glory of His wisdom and His goodness and how He provides for His people. So as we're going through it tonight, I want you to try to, and I'll point it out, but I want you to try to keep an eye out for both of those, His sovereign power in creation and His sovereign wisdom and goodness and His provisions the hymn writer gets it right in, in uh, oh, Worship the King, the, the fourth verse, Thy bountiful care, what tongue can recite? It breathes in the air, it shines in the light, it streams from the hills, it descends to the plain, and sweetly distills in the dew and the rain. And as this psalm is really woven uh, through the hymn here, Worship the King, what you'll see is, as the psalmist is talking about the way the Lord separated the waters from the land or the way that He causes the grass and the vegetation to grow or the way He does this or the way He does that, He's always, in this particular psalm, pushing toward 
And in his wisdom and goodness, this is how he provides for his people and for his for his creation. He provides for the animals this way. He provides for us this way. And so he's doing all these things. You've heard it said before, but Psalm 104 is a good illustration. He does all these things for our good and his glory. Okay. Psalm 104 is a celebration of that. Okay. So let's, let's get into it. Um, I'm, I'm not going to read it as a whole just for time's sake. We'll just, we'll take it as a, a chunk, chunk by chunk. Again, we said that it's a, it's a poetic celebration of God's sovereign majesty as creator and sustainer of all things. And so the opening praise here in verse one, bless the Lord, O my soul. Okay, again, he's talking to himself. Soul, you have reason to bless the Lord. When we get to the end of this psalm, and I'll point it out again when we get there, he says that the, the Lord's glory is enduring and it is everlasting and the Lord is pleased with all his works. And then his response is, I'm going to praise him. I'm going to rejoice in him. I'm going to be satisfied in him. I'm going to bless him. And so all of this, as far as this intentional focus on the Lord, what he's done, and the fact that his works also reflect who he is, they're all intended by the psalmist to stir his heart up to bless the Lord. So bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord, my God, thou art very great. Thou art clothed with honor and majesty. Then we start in verse 2. Who coverest thyself with light as with a garment. Coverest thyself with light as with a garment. Now we know as we particularly get into the New Testament that God is light and in Him there is no darkness. Right? Well, as we're kind of a tracking our way through structurally through the days of creation. You know what happens on day one. God separates the, or he, he separates the light from the darkness. But the psalmist here, as he's thinking about that, he's not just thinking about what God did. He's thinking about what God is. He says, Lord, you clothe yourself with light as with a garment. You are covered with it. Light, from a metaphorical standpoint, is meant to represent purity, holiness. It's, it's meant to, uh, to, to really represent, and we'll see this in a second, this exclusivity that God covers Himself in a light that is exclusive only to Him. 1 Timothy chapter 6 would, would hit that. We said already from 1 John Chapter 1, verse 5, that this is the message, John says, that God is light and that in Him is no darkness at all. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, it's what we just referenced, if you'll, you have your Bibles and you want to turn there. As Paul breaks out into doxology or breaks out into praise in 1 Timothy chapter 6, Speaking of Jesus Christ, 1 Timothy chapter 6, 
in verse 15, which in his times he shall show who is the blessed and only potentate or power, sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who only hath immortality dwelling in the light which no man can approach unto, whom no man hath seen nor can see, to whom be honor and power everlasting. Amen. Paul here, as he's writing to Timothy, and he breaks out into this praise, he describes God as the only potentate, or really the only sovereign. He's the King of kings. He's the Lord of lords. And then he describes him as this one who dwells in a light that no man can approach. It sets him apart from everyone and everything else. Okay, so whenever the psalmist in Psalm 104 is saying, Lord, you cover yourself in light, what he's saying is, Lord, you set yourself apart. No one can approach you. No one can be, no one can say, or it cannot be said about anyone else that they do this. The implication as far as in the creation story goes is that whenever God separates the light from the darkness, that God in all of His holiness gives of Himself to dispel the darkness in the world. So we have the one, the sovereign, who not only gives light, but He is clothed with light. Then it goes on in, in verse 2, second half, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain, who layeth the beams of his chambers in the waters, who maketh the clouds his chariot, who walketh upon the wings of the wind, who maketh his angels spirits, his ministers of flaming fire. We get the Lord stretching out the sky like a curtain. He created the firmament on day two. Right? To separate the waters. He stretches out the sky like a curtain. I mean, think about that. You could lose yourself just looking up in the sky. It's enormous. It just goes on and on and on. There's it from our perspective and from the human eye, and even with a even with the high-powered telescopes, you can't exhaust what's out there in the firmament. You just keep looking and looking and looking. And the psalmist says, Lord, you just stretched it out like a curtain. It's like you decided you were going to hang curtains that day, and you just did like that. It wasn't anything. It wasn't heavy. It wasn't complicated. You just stretched it out there. And then he gives this little metaphorical illustration. He says, he says, you stretched out the heavens like a curtain. And then he says, who layeth the beams of his chambers in the waters. Okay, the beams of his chambers. Okay, this is talking about the chambers here would be referring to his throne room. Okay, he lays the beams of his chambers. We're talking the beams here would be his, you know, the floor joist. If you're, if you're thinking about a construction job. Who in the world lays their floor joist in the middle of the waters? Well, God does. 
God does. What's being, what's, what's being said here? Well, what's being said is that he, he exercises sovereign control over nature. Okay. His sovereignty overrides even the natural properties of creation. He commands and they obey. He wants to lay the floor joist in the waters. It works. Why? Because he's sovereign king over all. Not only is he sovereign king over all, just as we see as Jesus commands the winds and the waves, nature obeys the sound of his voice. When he speaks, nature obeys. And so he lays the beams of his chambers in the waters. Listen, he makes the clouds his chariot, who walketh upon the wings of the wind. Verse 4, who maketh his angels spirits, his ministers a flaming fire. Now, verse 4, as far as the way it's, it's translated there, can be kind of obscure. But really, this is what he's saying. He, angel, the word angel, just messenger. He makes, he makes his messenger the wind and his minister the fires. That's just another way of saying he commands and nature obeys. He tells the wind what to do and it does it. He commands the fire and it obeys. You think about the wildfires that we see every year in California and other places like that that just seem to be completely out of control. Psalm 104, and it's, we're going to get even more specific than this, but Psalm 104 says, no, they may be out of your control and they may be out of my control, but they're the Lord's servants. He's got every single flame under his sovereign control and direction. Now, again, what's the psalmist doing here? Well, he's stirring his heart up to bless the Lord. Can you believe that we've been gathered in a place like this to worship a God like that? He's called us to come and to bring praises and to um, uh, to partake of the blessings and the provisions. And we haven't even got to that part yet in the psalm, but he's allowed us to enter into that. And so he stretches the skies out like a curtain. He exercises sovereign control over every aspect of nature. Then we get in verses 5 through 13. It says, Who laid the foundations of the earth that it should not be removed forever. Thou coverest it with the deep as with a garment. The waters stood above the mountains. At thy rebuke they fled at the voice of thy thunder, they hastened away. They go up by the mountains. They go down by the valleys unto the place which thou hast founded for them. Thou hast set a bound that they may not pass over, that they turn not again to cover the earth. He sendeth the springs into the valleys which run among the hills. They give drink to every beast of the field. The wild asses quench their thirst. By them shall the fowls of the heaven have their habitation, which sing among the branches. He watereth the hills from his chambers. The earth is satisfied with the fruit of thy works. Okay, so we start in, 
in verse 5, and we enter into day 3. Okay, The Lord separates the water from the dry land. So He begins by just talking about this fact in verse 5 that He laid the foundations of the earth that it should not be removed forever. What does that mean? Well, it just means that God Almighty is a master builder. He created and established the earth on firm foundations on which it was built. In other words, it's not, um, we're not wondering whether or not the earth is going to somehow disintegrate or the earth is going to somehow become uninhabitable before the Lord decides to wrap this thing up and to create the new heavens and the new earth. He created the earth on a firm foundation that it should not be removed forever. So then he goes on from there. You covered it with the deep as with a garment. The water stood above the mountains. When you, when you look at the uh, description there of those first days of creation, I mean, God really is bringing order out of chaos. It was just this formless, watery mess. And all of a sudden, the Lord brings in light. He separates the waters with the firmament. And then He begins to separate the water from the dry land. And this is how it's described. It, the, the water had, had, had covered as a garment uh, and, and stood above the mountains. So how in the world did God move all that? How did the Lord move all that? You know, water is a hard thing to move. You get more than a 20-ounce water bottle, it can get kind of heavy. If you're trying to move a huge amount of water, it is very, very heavy. You get into a pool or you get into a, a, a lake or an ocean and you try to push a four-by-eight sheet of plywood, see how far you get, you're not going to get very far. Okay, what's the text say? Verse 7, At thy rebuke, they fled. Okay, the Lord just spoke. The, the, the waters were over the mountains and it says, at your rebuke, you just told them what to do and they obeyed. At thy voice, uh, at the voice of thy thunder, they hastened away. That is, they went to where they were supposed to go. They go up by the mountains, they go down by the valleys and the place which thou hast founded for them. Now we're going to get into God's wisdom. Okay, so let's just say that you had the job of managing the globe and you had to figure out what to do with all that water. You knew you needed to separate it from the land, but how do you do it? Okay, that's a pretty complicated riddle. Now the second question is, how do you do it in such a way that it benefits everything else in creation? You'd never figure it out. God did. Okay, so he commands, the waters go. It says in verse 9 that he has set a bound that they may not pass over, that they turn not again to cover the earth. And then it says he sends, verse 10, the springs into the valleys which run among the hills and they give drink to every beast of the field. Wild asses quench their thirst and by them the fowls of the heaven have their habitation which sing among the branches. In other words, 
the Lord diverted the waters and placed the waters in such a way that the ecosystems work the way that they do. It provides life, sustaining life to the animals, to the humans. And so in His sovereign wisdom and in His sovereign goodness and separating the waters from the dry land, He did it in such a way that it sustains and satisfies the creation. Can you imagine us trying to live on a planet that was covered in water? Can you imagine animals trying to live on a planet covered in water? It wouldn't work. And yet God takes something that whenever it's in abundance would obliterate creation. He takes it and He begins to pull it up and to direct it in such a way that rather than obliterating life, it's providing, sustaining, and satisfying life. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Bless the Lord. Who could do that? Verse 13. He watereth the hills. I'm sorry, verse 14. Um, he causeth the grass to grow for the cattle an herb for the service of man, that he may bring forth food out of the earth, and wine that maketh glad the heart of man, and oil to make his face to shine, and bread which strengtheneth man's heart. The trees of the Lord are full of sap, the cedars of Lebanon which he hath planted, where the birds make their nest, as for the stork, the fir trees are her house." The high hills are a refuge for the wild goats and the rocks for the conies. Okay, we get today, still on day three here, with the creation of vegetation and trees. So verse 14 just tells us that God sovereignly causes the grass to grow. Okay, the reason that any vegetation ever grows is because of God's sovereign blessings. You can plant all you want to plant. But if God doesn't send the water, and if God doesn't bless the growth, nothing happens. And so, in His sovereign power, He causes the vegetation to grow. And then, in His wisdom and goodness, He does so in a way that sustains human and animal life. You notice he makes a beeline for that here. He causes, verse 14, the grass to grow for the cattle, and the herb for the service of man, that he may bring forth food out of the earth. Here he's talking about the, he's, he's giving, providing man with the materials that he needs to be able to work, to be able to labor for food. You know, part of God's good and wise blessing to man is giving us the ability and the materials to work, to labor. We live in a society where work is viewed as, as bad and, and, and oppressive and, and fill in the blanks. You know this already, but from a biblical perspective, God gave Adam work to do before the fall ever happened. 
Work was always part of God's good design. Work was always part of what it means for us to reflect the image of God. And so in God's wisdom and in God's goodness, He provides in such a way that it sustains and blesses, satisfies human and animal life. I mean, again, just the, the, the intricacy and the connectedness of the way all this works. God sends the waters so that the grasses grow, so that the cows can eat or the whatever animal can eat, so that we can eat. I mean, you take one of those out and we're gone. Right? So again, he, he, the, 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 the hymn writer nailed it. Thy bountiful care, what tongue can recite? When's the last time you thought, thank you, Lord, for the rain that's going to make the grass grow, that's going to feed the cow, that's going to end up on my supper table? We don't think that way. But that's exactly how it happens. And the psalmist is saying, I'm going to meditate and I'm going to think through. How can I bless the Lord for His wonders as creator and sustainer? Then he moves forward. We could stay here for a long time, but I promise we won't. Psalm 104, verse 19. Psalm 104, verse 19. We're going to read 19 through 24. We're getting into day four. The sun, the moon, the stars. As uh, lack of a better term, as timekeepers. The fact that we can measure time. The fact that we can keep a schedule. The fact that anything that we that we do is predictable at all. Verse 19. He appointed the moon for seasons. The sun knoweth his going down. Thou makest darkness, and it is night, wherein all the beasts of the forest do creep forth. The young lions roar after their prey and seek their meat from God. The sun ariseth, they gather themselves together and lay them down in their dens. Man goeth forth unto his work and to his labor until the evening. O Lord, how manifold are thy works. In wisdom hast thou made them all. The earth is full of thy riches. So really we get two things here. Number one, he made the sun, he made the moon, and he did this. He appointed the moon for seasons. Again, he gives us the ability to measure time and he's placed the earth on a predictable day and night schedule. Now, it's not always the same on all parts of the globe, but it is always predictable. So when you go to Alaska and it's all messed up, it's still predictable in Alaska. And whenever we'd go to Siberia, it would be 10 p.m. and it would look like it was you know, 5 p.m. here. So the sun still be out, but it's predictable in Siberia. They knew that. When's the last time you stopped to think about how incredible it is that we know that unless we're on a, a leap year, that in 365 days and one quarter, we will flip over to another year? You can get it all the way down to that. Why? Well, God appointed the moon for that and the sun for that. He gives us the ability to measure time for that. 
He also forces us, and this is less with the technological advances, if that's what you want to call them, but he forces us through day and night to keep some sort of a work-rest type schedule. That's built into creation. I want you to think about how chaotic life would be if you couldn't keep time. You wouldn't get anything done. You'd be trying to do everything all the time. You wouldn't get the proper amount of rest. You may not do that anyway, but you wouldn't have the ability to. Scheduling things. Your doctor's appointment at 10 o'clock could be impossible. You wouldn't know how to make it. School is from 8 to 2. Impossible. You wouldn't know how to figure it out. So just the blessing and stability that this measurement brings. But then he goes on as he does in the rest of the psalm and he, he presses this into this predictable schedule of day and night. And he says that in God's wisdom and in God's goodness, he has instinctively placed humanity and nocturnal beasts on opposite schedules, opposite work schedules. So it talks about the lions that go out at night. Um, and then when they're finished hunting for their prey, they come in and then man goes out to work. And then when he's done, he comes in. And I, honestly, I, I don't know much about lions and all the nocturnal animals and all that sort of thing, but I did read just to kind of see what is this all about. Because you, you look at the National Geographic thing, and a lot of times they're out during the day. But lions are classified as nocturnal predators. Now for us, we live in houses with locked doors, and you, know, you don't have any around you, so you're not too worried about it. But for somebody who lived in a, in a setting where that was the case, what a blessing that you could get out and you could do your labors in the day and then get yourself inside. So the lions and, and the tigers and the other nocturnal animals could do theirs. I did read, this is just a little tidbit, but most tiger and lion human attacks do happen at night because that's whenever they hunt their prey. Now, whatever else you could say about that, it's incredible. Why would God do that? What's His goodness? It's His goodness. Not just to us, but to the animals as well. Okay? God told humanity to take dominion over the animals. And His goodness to the lions is that He created humanity to do most of our work during the day and to rest at night. And really His goodness to us is that He created the nocturnal animals to do their work during the night and rest during the day. Now again, we don't think much about that, and I don't know, you know, I don't know the ratio or, or, or the number of nocturnal animals that are around here in Mississippi, but I can guarantee you this: if this schedule got flipped and there was no cycle, you'd know it pretty quick. You'd know it pretty quick. And so we say, bless the Lord. Bless the Lord. You you and your wisdom have done things that we don't even think about. He keeps going, verse 25. So is 
this great and wide sea. But, well, look at verse 24. I don't want to skip over that. O Lord, how manifold are thy works. In wisdom hast thou made them all. The earth is full of thy riches. You see, he stops there for a second and he just says, Lord, you, how many things have you done? The more I look, the more I see. And you've done them all in wisdom and you filled the earth with your riches. Okay, then he goes on. So is this great and wide sea wherein are things creeping innumerable, both small and great beast. Okay, he begins to, we're at day five of creation here, creatures of the sea. This is pretty interesting. You know, there are creatures in the deep sea that we didn't even know existed until we had the technology to put cameras down there. If you've never seen any of those, you know, planet Earth type documentaries, or there's one that's called Growing Up Animal that we watched with the kids a while back, and they really are fascinating, and, and, and you, you, you begin to see things and, and, uh, uh, see how the Lord has, has programmed things and nature and, and all those kinds of things. But think about this. Whenever you, whenever you get down to the bottom of the deep sea, and you have all these strange creatures that only come out at night. These big, bright, beautiful colors. I want you to think about the fact that for at least 6,000 years, there was only one person who enjoyed their beauty. And that was God Almighty. They were created for His pleasure. And He was the only one that knew they existed until we got the technology to put a camera down there. He says, Lord, it's, it's innumerable. All these things that you've created in the deep. Um, both small and great. Then verse 26, there go the ships. There is that Leviathan whom thou hast made to play therein. These wait all upon thee that thou mayest give them their meat in due season. That thou givest them... They gather, thou openest thine hand, they are filled with good. Thou hidest thy face, they are troubled. Thou takest away their breath, they die and return to their dust. Thou sendest forth thy spirit, they are created. And thou renewest the face of the earth. Here we're talking about God's appointed food for all of creation. Day six, he puts man in the garden, created the beast of the field and made provisions for them. And here's, here's what the psalmist is saying here. God is sovereign. Now think about this. God is sovereign over how many people and how many animals populate the earth at any given time. Okay. Any given day, God is sovereign over the number of people and the number of animals that populate the earth. Now look how he says it. In verse 28 he says that he's, he is, uh, uh, it's, that they are sustained through his sovereign provision that he gives and creation survives as far as man and animal. 
that thou givest them, they gather, thou openest thine hand, and they are filled with good. Again, if you've ever seen any of those, you know, the animal planet type shows and showing the, the, the journeys sometimes that these animals have to make. And, uh, you can, you know, you can put it down. They're going to show one that doesn't make it. You know, there's going to be an elephant that gets separated from the pack. There's going to be a mama that doesn't make it and, and her cubs have to go on without her. And, uh, they're going to put some sort of a sad something in there. Well, none of that's by accident. None of that's by accident. It says that God sovereignly gives and provides as he opens his hand, verse 28. But then it says in verse 29, you hide your face and they are troubled. You take away their breath. They die and they return to the dust. So if God hides his face or turns away from his creation, it's clear what happens. They die. God sovereignly chooses when to do which and with whom to do which. And then it says in verse 30 that in the midst of this whole creation cycle that he sustains some, he hides his face from others. And then in his sovereignty, he renews the earth with new life as he wills. Right? Verse 30, you send forth your spirit, your breath. They are created and you renew the face of the earth. So, Lord, you're sovereignly providing. Now, as he does all of this. He's doing it in the midst of our own labors and really in the midst of the labors of the animal kingdom as well. Okay, so instinctually animals know there's a journey that needs to be made because of weather. That's what they do. And sometimes they die on that journey. If there's a journey that needs to be made because of a particular kind of food that only comes up at some particular type of season and some particular body of water needs to be had, they make that. And sometimes they die. And God's sovereign in that. And then there are times where humans get sick and we go and we receive the treatment that's supposed to heal that sickness and we die. And God's sovereign in that. And you could go back on all of those scenarios and there are times where God opens His hand and He provides and He sustains And he's sovereign in that. And so what the psalmist here is saying is that in every single one of these instances, whether we're thinking about the wonders and riches of what you've done as a whole, or we're thinking about just the majestic intricacy that must go into your sovereign uh, overseeing of every single little instance like this that happens. Lord, we bless your name. Who could manage such a thing? Who could manage such a thing? It's difficult enough to manage a couple of kids. How about all of humanity plus the animal kingdom? Plus the vegetation, plus the waters, plus the skies, plus the planets, plus the stars. The psalmist is saying, 
Bless the Lord, O oh my soul. You thought you had problems? <laughs> Look at what God's dealing with. Look what God's managing. And He does it perfectly with wisdom and with goodness. And so He ends in these last four verses. Verses 31 through 35. He says, The glory of the Lord shall endure forever. Now, what's the glory of the Lord here? Well, the glory of the Lord that's being referenced here is everything that's been mentioned so far. Okay, that's going to endure forever. And, he says, the Lord shall rejoice in His works. He looketh on the earth and it trembleth. He toucheth the hills and they smoke. So he says, the glory of the Lord's going to endure his rejoicing in his works is going to endure. And then he spends the next several verses just saying, so what am I going to do in response to that? Well, he says in verse 33, I will sing unto the Lord as long as I live. I will praise to my God while I have my being. My meditation of him shall be sweet. I will be glad in the Lord. Let the sinners be consumed out of the earth and let the wicked be no more. Bless thou the Lord, O my soul. Praise ye the Lord. What does he say? He looks at all of this, considers all of this, and considers the fact that it's always going to be this way. He says, what am I going to do? He says, I'm going to sing. I'm going to praise. I'm going to meditate. I'm going to be glad. I'm going to bless. I'm going to rejoice and I will praise the Lord. Until the day that I die. Notice the intentionality here. He ends where he begins. A commitment to stir his heart to praise God. In this particular psalm. For who he is. Based on what he's done. The sovereign sustainer. The sovereign creator. Who has loved me. Who has cared for me. And who has provided for me. All the days of my life. Bless the Lord, O oh my soul. Let's pray. Father, we do bless your name tonight as we think about these things. Just the, um, uh, the, 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 the majesty um, of, of who you are and being able to keep up with all the things we just went through. Being able to uh, not just, not just create, but maintain and sustain the world that we live in, in every aspect of it. Father, I pray that you would bless us um, not, to, uh, uh, not to just walk away from tonight without a renewed intention to stir our hearts up to glory in you, to glory in who you are, to glory in what you've done, and to glory in the fact that of all the different aspects of creation that you keep up with, every single hair on our head is numbered. You love us. You're attentive to us. And so we bless your name. In Jesus' name, amen.